Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 175 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Early History of the N-1, Part 2. Last week we left the N-1 project at the end of 1963. At the beginning of 1964, despite hard work in the previous year, it was apparent that there were still one to two years of development and construction to go and the target dates set in the government decree would not be met. On March 24, 1964, Korolev managed another meeting with Khrushchev, where he again advocated an aggressive plan of lunar and interplanetary exploration. He dusted off his old L-3 lunar landing scheme. Korolev proposed to Khrushchev that two variants of the L-3 would be developed. The basic version, which used liquid oxygen and kerosene in the fourth stage, which was called Block G, and the fifth stage, which was called Block D, with dinitrogen tetroxide and unsymmetrical dimethyl hydrazine in the LK lunar lander stage. A later version would use liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen in all of these upper stages. This would add 4 metric tons to the lunar surface payload. Korolev promised to have an L3 draft proposal completed in 1964 and the spacecraft in service by 1966. Development of the liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen engines would take from 1964 to 1967. At the meeting, Korolev even pressed the TMK-E interplanetary manned spacecraft using the newest designs from his OKB-1 design bureau with nuclear electric engines. Khrushchev did express some interest now in the lunar landing scheme, in the face of the United States' determination to press on with the Project Apollo. Feeling he had Khrushchev's support, on May 25th, Korolev drafted a letter to Brezhnev. Now, Brezhnev was then in charge of missile development. Korolev complained of the delays in the N-1 due to lack of priority and financing. He noted, that of 11 million rubles budgeted for construction of the launch complex in 1964, only 7 million had been received. 
Two years after authorization, work on the guidance system had not even begun due to the priority of military projects. Korolov tried to put the screws to Brezhnev by telling him that Khrushchev had always sponsored scientific projects and that with the Saturn I rocket, the Americans had already surpassed the Soviet Union in the booster race. Korolov also attempted to sabotage Chalomi's LK-1 circumlunar project by noting that Chalomi was wasting time with Glushko's low-energy propellants and that a single launch of Korolov's N-2 could put a modified Soyuz on the same mission. Now, it's not entirely certain this letter was actually sent, but if it was, it certainly hurt Korolov's relationship with Brezhnev which was not good because Brezhnev would ascend to power in a year's time. But at least Korolev had convinced Khrushchev of the necessity for a high-priority lunar landing project to beat the Americans. On August 3, 1964, Command Number 655268 was issued by the Central Committee of the Communist Party. For the first time, a command was given for OKB-1 to put one man on the moon and return him safely to Earth before the United States. Now keep in mind, the U.S. already had begun their program three years earlier, in April 1961, so they had a head start. To achieve the goal of landing a man on the moon, the Soviets would require that a large part of industry be mobilized. Except, of course, for the industry used for competing and dissenting Glushko, Yangel, and Chalomi's design bureaus. The goal would require design of what was called the L-3 complex with the combined launch vehicle slash spacecraft called the N-1-L-3. The L-3 would utilize the same lunar orbit rendezvous method to achieve moon landing as was selected for the Apollo program. By upgrading the N-1 from a 75 metric ton to a 95 metric ton payload capacity, it was believed that a single N-1 launch could accomplish the mission. The L-3 complex itself had a total mass of 95 metric tons and it would consist of, first, a fourth stage for the N-1 to take the L-3 from low Earth orbit to translunar trajectory. Second, a lunar orbiter with a Soyuz re-entry capsule for return to Earth, and this was called LOK. Third, a lunar lander called LK for the landing of a single cosmonaut on the surface of the moon. And fourth, a deceleration stage which would break the L3 complex into lunar orbit and then take the LK lander to near zero velocity above the surface of the moon. The N1-L3 complex was designed not just for a quick initial moon landing, 
but also for exploration of the moon and near lunar space for both scientific and military purposes. In what was only to be the first stage of a sustained campaign, single cosmonauts would land on the lunar surface. However, this would be just part of a larger mission with the following objectives. Number one, to measure the physical characteristics of near lunar space and the lunar surface. Two, to place in orbit around the moon and on the surface high-precision automatic and manually operated scientific equipment. Three, to solve the navigation and biological problems associated with regular travel between the Earth and the moon. Fourth, to conduct detailed photo reconnaissance of the lunar surface from lunar orbit. And fifth, to conduct research and determine the most effective means for exploiting the moon for military purposes. Now, to do this, OKB-1 came up with a very interesting 10-step plan for the lunar mission. It goes as follows. 1. The L-3 complex would be injected into a 220-kilometer, 51.8-degree inclination parking orbit of the Earth. Up to one day could be spent in Earth orbit before translunar injection. Step 2. The Block G fourth stage would burn until propellant was depleted, putting the complex into translunar trajectory. The fourth stage would then separate. Step 3. During the three-and-a-half-day translunar coast, the fifth stage, Block D, would perform two mid-course corrections. Then it would put the LOK-LK Block D stack into an equatorial elliptical lunar orbit. The Block D stage would be restarted twice to adjust the orbit. First to a circular 110-kilometer orbit, then to descend down to 14 kilometers. The Block D could be restarted for up to four days in lunar orbit. Step 4. The LK, Lunar Lander, pilot cosmonaut would spacewalk from the orbiter to the lander and check out the lander and Block D systems. Step 5. The lander then separated from the LOK orbital module. As it approached the landing site, the Block D then began its main burn and braked the lander to 100 meters per second at 4 kilometers above the lunar surface. The Block D then separated and crashed on the moon. Step 6. The lander ignited its engines and hovered to a precision piloted soft landing on the surface. Step 7. The cosmonaut would exit the lunar lander to the lunar surface and stay there from 6 to 24 hours. Step 8. The lunar cabin portion of the lander and the Block E ascent stage would then launch itself from the lunar lander landing gear into lunar orbit. It would then rendezvous with the LOK orbital module and dock. Then the lander cosmonaut would once again spacewalk, this time from the lander 
back to the orbiter with his lunar samples. The LK was then cast off. Step 9. After up to one additional day in lunar orbit, the orbiter's Block 1 engine would put the orbiter into trans-Earth trajectory. Three and a half days was to be spent on the coast back to Earth with two mid-course corrections en route. Step 10. Before re-entry, the descent module separated from the orbiter with the two cosmonauts aboard. It would re-enter the Earth's atmosphere over the South Pole at 11 kilometers per second, then skip back to space after slowing down to 7.5 kilometers per second. Then the descent module would soar 5,000 kilometers before making final re-entry and landing on the territory of the Soviet Union. The total mission time was to be 11 to 12 days. It is important to notice that this plan did not use the Earth orbit rendezvous method that was originally proposed. The Soviets made the decision to increase the N-1 payload to 95 metric tons to allow the L-3 to be sent toward the moon in one launch. The Soviets took several steps to increase the N-1's payload to 95 metric tons. First, they lowered the altitude of the Earth parking orbit from 300 kilometers to 220 kilometers. Second, they increased the propellant mass of the first stage by 25%. Third, and this is a big one, they added six more engines to the first stage. Fourth, they increased the thrust of all engines on the first, second, and third stages by 2%. Fifth, they replaced the steel helium pressurization tanks with plastic tanks. Sixth, they reduced the parking orbit inclination from 65 degrees to 51.8 degrees. And seventh, they reduced the telemetry equipment in operational vehicles. All of these steps would theoretically increase the payload of the N-1 to 95 metric tons. Now, with a preliminary design and mission plan in place, the work for the L-3 project was split among the design agencies as follows. Korolev's Design Bureau would handle general management, the design of Block G and D, the design of the engines for Blocks D, L, and the LOK orbital module. Kuznetsov's group would supply the engines for Block G. Yangel's Design Bureau would provide the LK lunar lander and the engines for the lander's Block E rocket stage. Isayev's Design Bureau would provide the complete propulsion systems for the LOK Lunar Orbital Block 1 stage. Kuznetsov's group would provide the guidance systems for the L3 Lunar Complex, which included the LOK, the LK, and the Block D. Palyugin's group would provide the guidance system for the LOK, Ryzansky's group would provide the radio telemetry systems. Barnum's group would provide the N1 launch complex and the N1L3 ground systems. And Lyoka's group would provide the 40 metric ton thrust engines for the blocks G and V. 
They would also work with OKB1 in design for the 8.5 metric ton thrust block D engine. The plan was for the first launch of the N1 to be in the first quarter of 1966, with the first lunar landings in 67 to 68, easily beating the U.S. goal of 1969. The August 3, 1964 decree called for the completion of four N1-L3s in 1966, six N1-L3s in 1967, and six N1-L3s in 1968. By September 1964, construction began on the first N1 launch pad. Then, on October 13th, while Voskhod 1 was in orbit, Khrushchev was removed from power and Brezhnev's faction assumed control of the Politburo. This immediately led to a shift of political forces. Chalome lost his main patron, and Korolev again attempted to gain control of the L-1 manned circumlunar project. Many of Chalome's pet projects, such as the R. Rekto plan, the K Cosmo plans and the UR-200 booster were canceled. Meanwhile, the advanced design project for the N1L3 was completed in collaboration with Kuznetsov's OKB-586 Design Bureau on December 30, 1964. The decree for production of 16 sets of spacecrafts and boosters was issued on January 26, 1965. On August 25th of 1965, a knockdown dragout meeting was held between Ustinov and the chief designers. Ustinov contrasted the mounting success of the American space projects with the continuing delays and failures of the Soviet projects. Ustinov believed the problems the Soviets were struggling with were due to gross underfunding of the entire program and Duplication of effort between the chief designers. The chief designers fought bitterly and would not back down, but it was clear, finally, to the leadership that some drastic reorganization was required to keep up in the space race. Korolev could see that he would soon have the whole thing under his control at last. After several skirmishes during the year, on October 25, 1965, the Chalomi circumlunar project was given to Korolev, and Chalomi's LK-1 manned capsule was canceled. While this was a victory for Korolev, it did add another project to his workload at a time when the N1L3 was in serious technical and scheduling problems. By this time, Korolev had begun to admit to his colleagues that the moon landing could not come until 1969 at the earliest. At this critical juncture, Korolev learned that he was seriously ill and needed surgery. On January 14, 1966, Korolev died in a Moscow hospital during colon surgery. He had kept his illness a secret from his colleagues, and his death at the age of 56 came as quite a surprise to many. 
Gorlov's death is often cited as the blow from which the N1 project never recovered. Gorlov's successor, Vasily Mission, did not have the forceful personality and political connections of the original chief designer. Gorlov also had a legendary ability to motivate his staff and conjole cooperative design bureaus to prioritize work for OKB-1. Mission was never able to duplicate that. But the N1 project did continue without Korolov. In February 1966, construction started on the second N1 launch pad. By November, the first N1 hardware arrived at Baikonur, and construction of the full-size mock-up of the launch vehicle began. On November 16, 1966, another expert commission considered the state of the N1 program. With Korolov dead, once again, Glushko, Chalomi, and Yangel advocated development of the UR-700, or the R-56, instead of the N-1. While it was agreed that engine development and studies of these launch vehicles could continue, the government decree issued approved mission's draft plan for the first lunar landing. The first N-1 launch was now planned to be March 1968, two years later than originally projected. By February of 1967, the new schedule seemed to be holding, and the government approved integrated L-1 and L-3 project plans, indicating a landing on the moon by the end of 1968, which was still ahead of the U.S. The N-1 test plan called for the third quarter of 1967 as the beginning of flight hardware construction. The first manned L-1 circumlunar mission using the proton booster was anticipated as early as June 1967. The first N-1 launch was still set for March 1968, with a moon landing planned for the third quarter of 1969 at the earliest. Also in February 1967, assembly of the first N-1 began at the Progress plant in Samara. On March 10, 1967, Cosmos 146 was launched in the first test of hardware that would be used in the L-1 and the N-1-L-3 projects. The boilerplate 7K-L-1 was launched by a proton into the planned highly elliptical orbit. The Block D stage functioned correctly in this first test, putting the spacecraft into a translunar trajectory. The spacecraft was not aimed at the moon and no recovery was planned or attempted. But this successful launch created a false sense of confidence just before a string of failures that would follow. On April 8, 1967, Cosmos 154 reached Earth orbit, but the Block D translunar injection stage failed to fire. The spacecraft burned up two days later when its orbit decayed. By the end of summer 1967, the first N-1 launch pad was completed. In addition to the 16 flight vehicles, two N-1 mock-ups were being built to support pad 
compatibility test. Assembly of the first mock-up was nearing completion at the assembly building at Baikonur. In September 67, the EU-28 and 29 test models of the second and third stages began hot-firing tests on their stands at Samara. On November 25, 1967, the mock-up was erected on the first launch pad. After test of the electrical and hydraulic interfaces on the pad, it was returned to the assembly building on December 12. In November, a decree recognized yet further slips in the schedule, with a first test flight of the vehicle not expected until the third quarter, 1968. By March 1968, it was recognized that no Soviet manned lunar landing would take place until 1970. On May 7, 1968, eight months behind the 1966 schedule, the N-1 booster was finally erected at launch pad number one. Under its shroud was the 7KL-1 modified spacecraft. It was modified to incorporate the forward propulsion module that would be used on the lunar orbiter and the lunar lander. A mass model representative of the lander was also included. These early test N1s were limited to a liftoff mass of 2,735 metric tons and had an Earth orbit payload of 70 metric tons. Even with this limited version, it took 165 train car loads of material to construct the vehicle. Back in 1962, they estimated only would take 43 train car loads. Next, the Soviets scheduled a September 1968 test flight of the N-1. But they discovered a problem. The first stage oxidizer tank developed cracks during ground test. So, the first stage booster had to be removed from the pad to be repaired. A mock-up was put in its place on the launch pad in order to train the launch crews. After much work and training, a new test flight of the N-1 was scheduled for January 1969. for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.